You're listening to Green Biz Radio, the voice of GreenBiz.com, bringing you news and analysis on business, the environment, and the bottom line. Now, here's Green Biz Executive Editor, Joel McCower. For 25 years, Gary Hirschberg, the co-founder and CEO of Stonyfield Farm, has shown that making yogurt doesn't necessarily require using the same old culture. From the get-go, this environmental activist has used his decidedly capitalist venture as a laboratory to promote green business practices. Along the way, he's harnessed his idealism and iconoclasm to build one of the leading brands in the dairy case. All the while, he's demonstrated that getting bigger doesn't necessarily mean having to lose one's passion or values. Recently, I talked with Hirschberg on the occasion of the release of his new book, Stirring It Up, How to Make Money and Save the World. Gary, you said in your book that economic self-interest is the most powerful, if not the only force, capable of bringing about the changes needed to ensure the well-being of the planet. That doesn't sound like your typical environmentalist manifesto. (laughs) Uh, No, but uh, I think um, it may sound like a wizened, gray-haired old environmentalist. Uh, You know, I've been um, involved in various kinds of activism for 30 years. And uh, what I find is that, uh, not unlike political campaigns, there's a kind of an emotional ebb and tide, and, and certainly, uh, uh, in, in general, that ebb and tide sweeps up uh, the activists, the already convinced. Um, but when you look at trying to penetrate uh, deeper into society, into the mainstream, to make uh, true and lasting changes, I think, in the end... Uh, it's important to face up to the fact that people are, um, you know, we're, we're an economic species. We're driven by, um, you know, where the comfort is, where the jobs are, where the safety and security is. And that, that means it has to make economic sense. So uh, how have you managed to, to bridge those two? It sounds like um, it, it requires a, a very different mindset than, than most businesses have these days. Well, I think it is a different mindset in 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 sort of totality. And if you um, if you stay at the very uh, philosophic level, I think uh, you're absolutely right. But if you get when you get down to practice, you realize it's not uh, so complicated. I mean, what we used to call to- total quality management back in the '80s um, it was really about uh, making sure there were no stones unturned in terms of your aspects of your business you know are you are you operating at the most efficient managerial level possible um, the 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 idea of greening your business or or uh, being uh, greener as a economic entity uh, merely takes what used to be called TQM and takes it external uh, look takes into consideration the environment the the community um, the supply chain upstream and the distribution chain downstream and recognize that these are practical opportunities to either reduce expenses or increase your profits by building affinity with your uh, consumers. And so um, in practice, uh, what we're really talking about here is plugging leaks, uh, but also recognizing that it, the action of plugging leaks, that is, of cutting, of improving your efficiency, makes you uh, potentially more um, appealing to uh, to your consumers. And uh, one one interesting thing, Joel, is that 
uh, we've discovered of late is that nearly everybody who does a climate uh, footprint uh, in, in their business discovers that their supply chain is, in fact, where the lion's share of their footprint uh, exists. And so in practice, um, if we're serious about um, uh, making an environmental difference, uh, or even if we're not, um, if we're just trying to make more money, uh, supply chain is obviously one of the first places you go. Um, you you want to have a more secure supply. You want to have the most efficient and lowest cost supply, and so forth and so on. So this just uh, this attitude uh, that that again could be could be seen as highly radical is really no more complicated than looking at where the biggest uh, opportunities lie to uh, reduce our costs. We sound like this is uh, just a lot of good business sense, and, and of course a lot of it is, but I'm, st- I'm struck by, as you wrote in the book, how you, some of the things that you did as a company that just flew in the face of what is really conventional business wisdom. For example, you paid suppliers, uh, some suppliers almost twice as much for certain ingredients. You hardly do any advertising. In fact, you promote others' causes on the package labels. You, you, you uh, promote government oversight for your business, and, and you uh, pretty much uh, leave no stone unturned in terms of talking about your environmental progress or lack thereof if you're actually not doing as well as, as you had hoped. How do, you, how do these options at the time you know, come to you as good business sense when, in fact, it's sort of the opposite of what everyone else has done? Sure. Good question. Well, you, of course, you have to pull that question apart. Um, the, the government standards, for example, uh, I'm certainly not a fan of big government, but in the case of organics, um, lack of a clear definition of what is organic, lack of a clear standard, uh, would allow organics to become what natural is now, which is a meaningless term. So this is one of these uh, instances where, in fact, um, commerce uh, has needed to have uh, something that either makes uh, it clear that... Your product, your service, your uh, process is organic or not, black or white. And uh, unfortunately, regulation is the only real way to do that, along with, by the way, the the teeth to support it. Um, In the case of the supply chain, though, um, you know, uh, when when we started out, uh, we had, uh, I I often uh, joke that the only problems that we had, we had a wonderful company, the only problems we had were no supply and no demand. And... Uh, you know, all, all kidding aside, nobody knew what organics was, um, but we knew that uh, in order to move processor, in order, excuse me, in order to move farmers to a place of greater comfort, that we as a processor were going to be around as a reliable customer. Uh, it wasn't just uh, you know sitting around the kitchen table and saying we're nice guys, you got to sell to us and turn your lives inside out and go through this three-year process of converting your fields and your animals and so on. It, it, what it really came down to was we needed to pay them uh, enough money to give them an incentive to take that risk. And, of course, it's, it's you know, farmers converting to organic are, are no different than all the rest of us. They're the early pioneers, and, and, and if you can get a couple of them, then they'll, they'll move others there. Um, but it's a big, big leap that we're asking them to make. They, they uh, have, I think, in hindsight now realized that, in fact, um, in, in most cases for our farmers, that, that, that this was the most economic thing they could have done. Many of them have made money for the first time in their lives uh, after farming decades and, and having converted uh, only after having converted to organic. But um, 
but for us, it was a matter of not just enticing some farmers over, but really offering a completely different economic model that took them off the roller coaster ride that uh, that is conventional uh, commodity milk pricing in in this country. Um, the, the the leap of faith, though, to cut right to the heart of your question, is that the consumer would ultimately care about any of this stuff. And I'll be the first to admit that you know when we started, it was a uh, we were kind of uh, preaching to a small uh, chorus, and and the art, I suppose, if if there is any in in what we've discovered over these twenty five years here, is that by um, being very upfront about these steps that we're taking, which, as you say, are sometimes illogical, uh, we endear ourselves to the consumer. And and the leap has to be uh, one uh, for any business, whether you're selling B2B or, or directly to consumers, that you're going to reach, have an emotional connection with your, uh, your customer. And I, I would just submit that my experience says that if you can get, if you can achieve that, and again, an emotional connection is not uh, a frail one. It's something that you build that's got integrity. That you know you have, you have to you have to do your part to own up to to live up to their expectations. But if you achieve it, um, then you get this uh, thing that I call the holy grail of consumer products, which is loyalty. And the economic reality of loyalty is that you have to spend less on advertising or marketing once you've achieved it. I, I think that the average. Um, consumer and certainly the average uh, business person now understands that externalities like climate are going to have to be factored into our businesses and therefore if you can provide them solutions that will help them um, to reduce their climate footprint that will help them to be seen as solutions and they're going to be a little bit more loyal to you loyal to you I'm wondering whether the kinds of things that you're talking about here the things that you've done in, in your business are things that only a uh, startup, smaller company can do, or are these things that that a, a larger, much bigger ship to turn can actually uh, m- make the kind of changes or, or take the kind of daring steps that you've made? Yeah. Well, through most of my career, I wondered the same thing. And, and frankly, uh, what finally led me to capture these thoughts in, in a book uh, was my very clear realization that, in fact, um, this is we're ready for uh, mainstream here, uh, and and I and I came to that conclusion by uh, my close relation, working relationship with Group Danan. I mean, for certain in the in the 80s and 90s to go organic uh, or to measure your climate footprint or to you know be concerned about these externalities was uh, you know took a certain amount of uh, um, I don't know a, a kind of a a mutant gene or something. It took a definitely a different perspective. But now, uh, even at the highest levels of um, of consumer products, and again, Danone is the fourth largest food company in the world, um, these folks, number one, A, do not need to have any, be convinced at all that uh, cutting their climate footprint, reducing their use of fossil fuels is money in the bank. But secondly, they are, they are desperately seeking competitive advantage over, in, in the case of Danone, Nestle, Kraft, Unilever, and so forth. And so um, for them to be able to make themselves more appealing to a Walmart who has clearly stated they want their supply chain to be um, responsible, uh, or to a um, an Ahold who's just looking for the most efficient uh, 
um, cost-effective uh, way to produce the highest quality, or you know whatever the the the, the competitor, whatever the customer's requirements. Um, when you lay all of this out in, in sort of simple, all the sustainability talk out in terms of simple competitive advantage, um, these guys are all over it. Uh, and the, the, the case in point is that, uh, I mean, Danone is in the bottled water business, which is obviously a problematic business when you look at environmental footprint. And so um, what they've been able to do, again, with enormous buying power, is uh, convert their bottled uh, their uh, plastic bottles for uh, Evian bottled water into 100% recycled uh, material. They've um, done a complete climate map of their entire supply chain, and they're now um, reaping enormous uh, returns from uh, all kinds of reductions, everywhere from the literally the source uh, right through to the uh, end consumer. And they're hardly alone. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell now um, is building uh, or proposing to build the largest wind farm in the world, in the, on the North Sea, enough to power uh, London. Um, and if you think that they've gotten there because of some moral uh, proposition, uh, um, I mean, we're talking billions of investment, uh, you know, d- 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 then you're completely missing the point. They see this as the next economy. They recognize that there's maybe uh, endless amounts, uh, may- maybe uh, not, not, we're not at the very end of the oil supply chain, but we're probably approaching the end of the cheap oil supply chain. And therefore, they need uh, uh, to uh, see themselves as an uh, energy provider looking at renewables as, as much as they've looked historically at uh, fossil fuels. You talk about Group Danone, which is the, the, the big French company that, that has purchased, uh, is it the majority share of Stonyfield? Yes, they have a majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and obviously a, a big business. I, I, I was struck in, in your book uh, about this one of the epiphany moments that you had back in 1982 when you visited uh, Disney's Epcot Center in Orlando, Florida, and saw the Craft Pavilion. And I think I was there just about that same year, and probably we sat in similar cars on the same uh, same path. Uh, and you were struck that that this is a uh, basically a, a corporate advertisement promoting, you know, all the things that that corporate food production uh, now represents, um, you know, fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides and and monoculture and everything else. I, I'm wondering, what that 25 years later, now that you're part of a big company and that both you and Kraft have likely evolved, what do you think of Kraft now? <laughs> Well, it's very interesting. Of course, the story uh, for those who read the book will, will uh, as you have, uh, will learn that uh, really they inspired me not by their positive uh, uh, role model, but by the negative role model. I, what, what I recognized that day was that for the 25,000 people who were visiting my little ecological research institute, that's how many people paid to go there every day. And I, I said to my mom, I've, uh, who was a senior buyer uh, down at the Epcot Center. Uh, I need to become craft. If I want to move my values and my, my ecologic proposition into the mainstream, I've got to have that kind of reach. Um, so the funny thing is I, I really emulated craft. I wanted to become as, as um, efficient as they are, were in uh, reaching the consumer. Um, Fourteen years after that statement, we did pass craft in sales of yogurt, and they've never really looked back. We're five times their size. Uh, but interestingly, um, just the other day, my sister brought me a package of Kraft Organic American Cheese Singles. Um, now, we can debate the packaging problems of American Cheese Singles, but the reality is 
Uh, while I set out to be like Kraft, I'm, I'm now find, very pleased to tell you they, they've set out to be like us. So, um, you know, what, what we did with Denon, Joel, was uh, something very uh, unique and, and almost anti-capitalistic. Denon bought out my founding shareholders, all 300 of them, um, and really ultimately owned 80% of the company. But they left me in complete control, literally with majority control of my board. And uh, what that tells you is that they recognized that there was something more than just a good brand here. There was intellectual capital. There was a, uh, a relationship that I really delve into in the book um, with our consumer that, that, that ties all of these points together, that, that, that demonstrates that you can be committed to sustainability, uh, run uh, an efficient and profitable business, and build a bond with consumers without spending as much on advertising. Now, you... I guarantee you that there isn't a, a large consumer products company in any sector out there who isn't interested in that discussion because they're all finding out that advertising is much less effective than it used to be. People are over-messaged and, and uh, more cynical than ever, and they don't really believe what companies tell them. But what, they do, what consumers do believe is what another consumer tells them. And so whether it's Kraft or Kellogg's or Nabisco or, or Danone, um, these guys are uh, through new media, through uh, more um, uh, uh, thoughtful and, and uh, cause-related, in, in, in many cases, uh, marketing, they are working very hard to create that kind of word-of-mouth phenomenon. The only way you create that is by building an emotional tie to the consumer, by building loyalty. So uh, the way I view Kraft and, uh, and all these other large companies is that they really are the way that we're going to have to, the way that we're going to get uh, to, into the 21st century here, the way that we're going to become a more sustainable economy. We're not going to get rid of them. Uh, we've just got to change them. And fortunately, um, they are all coming to us. They're all discovering that this is a way to make more money, uh, build loyalty, to, uh, reduce their dependence on advertising, and in the long run, uh, uh, build a more sustainable enterprise. Gary, you describe yourself in the book as unabashedly optimistic and hopeful, and you certainly sound that way in this conversation. And yet I know personally that you're probably your biggest critic. <laughs> Do you think that Stonyfield Farm will ever be good enough? Uh, I, 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 no, I can't imagine that we, that we ever will be. And the reason for that is that you, know, what, what we're, you and I are sitting here using words like sustainability and economics, but what we're actually talking about is evolution. I mean, we, we, uh, you, you, you trace the history of humans' relationship to the planet, and what you find is that wherever uh, we could rub two sticks together and make something economic, uh, you know, something better than the, 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 than the sum of the parts, uh, then uh, we would do so. Uh, you know, we're a practical species, and therefore when oil is there to be extracted and we labor under this myth uh, of something called a way, where we can send our waste, or we labor just with the more fundamental myth that we can extract from the earth and, and, uh, and produce something called waste that doesn't exist in nature. These are, um, these are uh, we, we need to reflect on these uh, uh, steps and these approaches to the planet and, and recognize that they're pretty primitive. And we've got to get to a much higher level. Again, by mimic, in my own view, it should be by mimicking nature where, again, you know, the amount of sun striking the U.S. in a single hour is enough to power our economy for, uh, you know, a, a year. Um, you know, there's, there's energy there. We just have to adjust our mindset. So I view Stonyfield's uh, 
opportunity and challenge, the same as I view our challenge and opportunities as a species, which is that we're engaged in the process of continuous improvement. Um, if there's any hope for our children, it's that some of us will have figured out, will figure out that we don't have to produce and toxify our planet, that we don't have to exploit every last bit of non-renewable resource, that there are more sustainable ways to do it. And, and so, you know, Stonyfield uh, is, uh, is an experiment. It's, it's obviously, uh, I think, a successful experiment. But uh, we have a long, long way to go to reduce our carbon footprint to where I, I want it to. And I, I don't think any of us should be faulted for that. Uh, no one in any enterprise or, or in any of our lives should, should, should be carrying around guilt. We are where we are in this evolutionary cycle. But on the other hand, um, you know, we're all compost sooner or later. And a friend of mine says, don't take life too seriously. It's just a temporary condition. Uh, my, my view is... Uh, you know, I've got a couple of more decades here, hopefully, of some of productivity, and it's my intent to keep on pushing the envelope uh, with this company and others that I'm involved with to, to uh, again, just try to expedite that evolution. Well, Gary, it certainly uh, has been inspiring, and, and your book, Stirring It Up, How to Make Money and Save the World, uh, has a lot more inspiration about how you've gotten as far as you have. And um, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. I appreciate it, Jill. Thanks. You've been listening to Green Biz Radio. For the latest daily news on business, the environment, and the bottom line, and to sign up for our free newsletters, visit greenbiz.com.